0: The reading is taken from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. I praise you for remembering me in everything, and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head, But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her hair shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well perhaps you've had the experience, you you wake up in the morning, you sit down with your Bible and your coffee and as you're getting ready to, to read the scripture you pray, Lord please would you speak to me this morning, please would you help me to understand and apply it to my life. And you open up the scripture to the chapter that you're looking at that day and well you just read the weirdest stuff. You know the sort of thing, right? So. Um, Abraham in the book of Genesis when he tries to pass off his wife Sarah as his sister so that she can uh, go have a date with the Pharaoh. And that happens not just once, but two times. Or you might think of in Two Kings when Elijah, he's um, out uh, doing his prophetic thing and some young men come and make fun of him and bears come out of the woods and maul them to death. And you just think, Lord, what am I supposed to get from that? How does that apply to my life? What does it mean? And maybe you say, well, maybe tomorrow, Lord, you can can speak to me. That would be good, too. Well, if you've ever had experiences like that, well, then count yourself lucky that you're not a pastor. Because sometimes, if you're a pastor like I am, and you believe that you should preach through the whole of uh, books of the Bible and, and not leave anything out, sometimes you find yourself in a position of having to preach on that sort of text, and wondering, what does it mean? And how do I explain it to the church? Well, this week's passage is a little bit like that. And I mean, if you have your Bibles open in front of you, if you would just scan down through verses two to 16 again, and notice some of those difficulties that are here. In verse three, we read that the head of the woman is man, And right off the bat, that's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? And then verses 4 to 16, we have this long discussion of head coverings and uh, why men shouldn't wear them and women should and and the honor and the shame that it brings. And that might feel a little awkward for any of you long-haired men or or you short-haired women. And if that wasn't strange enough, well then, verse 10, Paul says uh, that what we do or don't do, um, what we put on our heads or, or don't put on our heads, well, we should, we should do that, and it matters because of the angels, because of the angels, as if there weren't e- enough um, issues in this text to deal with. We probably have to admit that we didn't consult the angels last time we decided whether or not to wear a hat. Well, I think with all of that, we have to admit that this is a bit of a strange part of the Bible, and probably, I would say, for nobody watching, is this the favorite section of the Bible. I'm willing to wager that. And yet, how do you react to it when it comes time to look at it? I wonder how you react to bits of the Bible like this. Do you get upset, and do you think, well... Paul surely lost the plot, and we could just reject him on this. Or do you feel a little superior and think, well, we know better now than they did then, and so we're free to just ignore it? Or do you just ignore it and pretend it doesn't matter? You don't really think one way or the other about it? Well, if any of those are your immediate reaction, I'd I'd love to invite you to reconsider. Because, you see, I have a rock-solid, iron-clad belief that the Bible is God's word to us. And because that's my conviction, I believe that every section, no matter how odd, has been put there by God because we needed it. Out of everything that he possibly could have written down for us, Uh, about life, about the universe, about everything. The things in the Bible are what he has decided we need to know. And so every section of the Bible is important for that reason. It is what God has chosen to tell us. And more than just information, God's word to us is good for us. It's his good word. By hearing it and understanding it and living out its truth, it leads to a more flourishing life. For you and me. So as strange as it might initially seem as difficult as some sections are, the vast majority is clear, but some sections are difficult to understand. It is always worth the effort to pay close attention to God's words. And because those are my convictions about all of Scripture, well, that means that when I come to difficult spots like this bit of 1 Corinthians, well, I, I believe it's worth closely studying, and uh, I hope you come to share my conviction about Scripture. If you haven't prayed for me recently as your pastor, now would be a really great time to do that as we dive into this. So uh, in fact, let let me just pray before we dive into this passage. Lord, you know all of the weird and wonderful things that we find in this section of 1 Corinthians because you wrote it. By the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, you wrote these words for us. And so, Lord, I pray for your help uh, that we might come to understand and uh, see all that you have in it for us and help us to live it out, we pray as well. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. And so, in order to understand and and apply this passage of Scripture, I want to show you That this is, first of all, a cultural issue that Paul is writing about. A cultural issue, and then a theological issue. And then we'll see how we might think about applying it to our lives today. So first, we need to understand that Paul is talking here about a cultural issue. The meaning of hats, if you will. Over chapters 8 to 10, Paul has been instructing the Corinthians in how they should live. Uh, how they should live, though, outside the church, in in a pagan society. And so all of that discussion was about um, how to live in a society where other gods are worshipped and not the true God, and what to do at pagan temples and and with uh, meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul said, in a pagan culture, you need to lay down your rights for the advantage of other people. And so, if it would help other people come to the true God, uh, then maybe you should think about becoming a vegetarian, is what he said. And um, chapter 10, verse 32, is a great summary of those chapters. He says this, Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, so that they may be saved, he says in verse 33, so that they may be saved. And now in, in chapters 11 to 14, Paul changes his focus from the world outside the church where the, the pagans are worshiping, and he turns his focus inside the church to where the people of God are gathering. And it's, these chapters, verses 11, or chapters 11 to 14, are about um, how to behave in the church of God. How should Christians relate to each other? And as we'll see, we're still to seek the advantage of other people, but it plays out differently inside the church than outside. And the first topic that he addresses in these chapters is a question about the appropriate clothing, particularly head coverings, whether they're appropriate in worship or not. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that in Corinthian society, certain articles of clothing had certain significances. And... Uh, We have those sorts of issues with clothing as well. For example, if you saw me out and about on the beach in swimming trunks and flip-flops, well, you wouldn't think anything of it. That would be perfectly normal. You'd probably be wearing the same. But if I came to your wedding in swimming trunks and flip-flops, well, you would rightly be offended, wouldn't you? Because It would show something about my attitude to your special day, to to you and to the loved ones that came, all dressed up in their finest. It would show a disrespect. uh, It would be disgraceful in some sense. And in Corinth, head coverings, which were uh, pieces of cloth that were draped down, hanging off of the head, uh, they weren't right or wrong in any um, specific way. Rather, it was the, the meaning attached to those head coverings that Paul is getting at here. Um, they had certain cultural connotations that could make their presence or, or their absence in Christian worship offensive. Roman men, they generally had short hair and uh, they generally did not wear these kind of draped cloth head coverings. The only time when they did wear them was during pagan worship. Uh, so in a temple ceremony, when they were going to offer the sacrifice, they would pull their togas up over their heads uh, to cover their heads before the gods uh, and to make their sacrifice. Archaeologists have found a statue of Emperor Augustus in, in Corinth, actually, with just this sort of head covering on. And they say it's, it was a piece of propaganda sent out to various parts of the empire to show just what a pious guy. Emperor Augustus was. Uh, And the cultural expectation for women, though, was completely different. Roman women, uh, along with Hebrew women and Greek women, they were expected, if they were respectable, to have long hair and and to wear head coverings when they went out in public. Although they they wouldn't wear one at home when they were with family members uh, inside their own kind of private area, when they would go out in public, uh, they would wear these head coverings, and if they didn't, it would be a sign of a sexual availability, really. Uh, You probably were not a respectable kind of woman if you went out in public without your head covered. And for married women to go out in public without a head covering, well, that would uh, suggests they were looking for attention from other men. That, that would be dishonoring and disgraceful, not only for them, but for their husbands as well. And likewise, uh, cropped, closely cropped hair or a shaved head, well, that was a sign uh, of an adulterous woman. That would be part of the punishment for a woman committing adultery, so that everyone out in public would know what this woman had done, and they would uh, scorn her. Well, we don't know exactly why the Corinthians were flaunting these rules, why, why they were going against the cultural norms, but whatever their reasons were, it was sending all the wrong signals. By praying and prophesying with their heads covered, men were sending the signal to the wider culture that Christ, he's just like all the other pagan gods, and, and you can worship him just the same. And women, by praying and prophesying without their heads covered, well, they were saying to the, the wider culture, or the wider culture would think they were saying, that Christian uh, women and the Christian church was sexually promiscuous and um, didn't really care for the traditions of marriage and, um, and respectability. And that would have been shameful not only for the women themselves, but to their husbands as well. And Paul says, if you're going to invite scandal in that way, why not just shave your heads completely and really be scandalous? And of course, thinking, well, you wouldn't. So with that social context in mind, you can see why Paul speaks about this cultural issue of clothing, uh, not in terms of rightness or wrongness, but in terms of social sentiment, as you scan down through these verses, verses 4 to 5, they speak of dishonor, verses 6 and 14 of disgrace, 7 and 15 of glory, and verse 13 of what is proper. Those are the sorts of words that Paul uses about this, this head covering. Now, I think that part of what Paul is saying, therefore, is that Christians should respect the cultural practices and expectations of the society that they live in, especially where to do otherwise would bring uh, dishonor uh, towards God or, or disgrace on other members of the congregation. That's not what the church is about. Our church exists within a wider cultural context. And the way we dress, the way we speak, the way we behave in church uh, in general, should be seen as proper and honorable by the rest of society. Of course, there will be things that we disagree with the rest of society on, and um, ways that we, beliefs that we hold that may be um, not in favor in wider society. But the way we conduct ourselves should be seen to be with respect and with honor. Now, since we're living in uh, 21st century Hong Kong and not first century Rome, head coverings don't have that kind of meaning for us, do they? We, we don't have the same sorts of cultural expectations around clothing. They don't convey honor or shame in our culture. They don't have anything to do with worship or sexual availability. Uh, the hats that we wear don't matter in that sense. So ladies, if you're wondering if you should wear a hat the next time we are able to physically gather for church, um, That is not God's expectation on you, I don't believe. If you feel that you should, then do, but you're not required uh, because of this passage of Scripture. And men, if you're wondering, should I get a haircut before the next time uh, we gather together in person? Probably, but but not because God commands you to. Um, Not because it has anything to do with your honor or your shame, but just for um, how nice you might look. Even though uh, the particular cultural connotations about head coverings don't apply to us, I do think there are still um, ways to apply this passage for us. And I think that we'll see um, the ways to apply as we go. Because Paul is not just talking about a cultural issue here. He's also talking about a theological issue. And that's what I think he addresses in verse 3, but then also verses 7 to 11. A theological issue. Under the surface surface issue of clothing, there is this deeper issue of gender. Theology is actually Paul's starting point for addressing this whole problem. Uh, Look again at verse 3 with me. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, when we first read that, I wonder what our reaction is. It might seem a bit shocking. It might seem like the product of a regressive ancient culture. Or maybe some are asking, is Paul a misogynist? Or some are saying, don't we know better these days than that? And you'll certainly find a lot of people who would want to say that about this part of Scripture and about others as well. And they would reject this passage, uh, along with most of what the Bible has to say about gender and and about relationships. Paul would certainly be canceled on Twitter for saying this sort of thing. But I'm convinced that uh, what we have here was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and I'm convinced, furthermore, that it's good for us. And so if that's true, how do we make sense of what this says? What are we to make of it? Well, first, let's be sure that we're actually uh, understanding what Paul is saying here, rather than what we suspect him to be saying. He says that the head of the woman, or wife, it could be translated either way, is man or husband. Now, since the 1970s, a lot of ink has been spilled on this passage and a couple of others uh, about what exactly the word head means in this context. Because it seems increasingly awkward in a a culture of uh, women's liberation and the rise of of feminism to say something like this, increasingly uncomfortable, and so lots of people have tried to to nuance it and tried to maybe get around a little bit what is being said here. And as with the English word head, the, the New Testament word kefale, which is, um, which is translated here as head, has the meaning of um, both the physical head but also the metaphorical head. It can mean source, as in the head of a river. It can mean uh, preeminence, as in the headline of an article. It can mean authority, as in the head teacher of a school. Uh, one... Theologian has surveyed some 2,300 uses of the word head in uh, ancient Greek literature. And apart from where it means the the head of a, the physical head of a human or of an animal, and that's the vast majority of references in Greek literature, um, the, the most common metaphorical use is authority over. And therefore, despite the objections of some, I would say that we can conclusively read Paul is saying here, uh, the authority over the woman is man. So that's what Paul is saying. Secondly, though, let's be sure to see what these verses are not saying. Just as importantly, I think many people assume that Paul is saying that women are inferior to men. After all, isn't the CEO of the company Um, more valuable than the intern? And doesn't the head teacher have a superior status to the other teachers of the school? Authority makes a a person important, doesn't it? Well, that can't be what Paul is saying, actually, because it would make nonsense of the Christian faith. Look at verse 3 again. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. God the Father had authority over Jesus Christ, but that didn't make Jesus inferior to the Father during his earthly ministry. He said, I and the Father are one. Remember that? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It is basic Christian teaching that Jesus is fully and completely God. He exercises power over the natural and the supernatural realm. He forgives sins. He um, controls life and death. He will come again to judge the world. Our, Our creed, summarizing the teaching of the Bible, says that Jesus is of one being with the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. If that were not the case, then it would be blasphemous to worship Jesus, if Jesus was somehow uh, less than God or, or other than God. And yet, during his earthly ministry, what do we see Jesus doing? We see Jesus submitting to the will of his Father, don't we? Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus repeatedly says that he is about his father's business and he's doing only what he's been sent to do by his father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus uh, knelt down and prayed earnestly that if there was any other way for salvation to occur, please, Father, would you let this cup pass from me? Please, would you uh, find another way other than going to the cross? And yet, As he ended that prayer, what did he say? Yet not my will, but your will be done. And in Philippians 2, we read that although Jesus had equality with God, he became obedient to death, even death on the cross, because that was uh, the Father's will and, and the plan for redemption. Jesus submitted to the authority of the Father. And according to Scripture, that obedience didn't make him inferior. In fact, far from it, that is the obedience that made him glorious. Uh, the, The height of his glory, according to the Gospel of John, is the cross. And that passage in Philippians 2 again, because of his obedience, God gave him the name above every name and exalted him to the highest place. Therefore, by saying that the head of the woman is man, Paul is not calling one superior and one inferior. He's pointing out how God designed man and woman to relate, how he designed husband and wife to relate. Just as God the Father and Jesus are equal, so men and women are equal in dignity and worth There's no distinction drawn about intelligence or uh, value in any way. No, they're equal. But just like Jesus and God the Father had different roles in redemption, man and woman have different roles in our world and in marriage in particular. Men have been given headship. They're called to exercise a, a loving authority in their marriages and in the church. Women have been called to willingly submit to that authority uh, in the the case of their their husbands. And when husbands and wives relate to one another in that complementary way, well, it leads to a more flourishing family, but also a more flourishing church, because that uh, is how we were created. That's what Paul goes on to argue in verses 7 to 10. This isn't just a cultural thing in first century Rome. This is a creation thing. Um, Verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Paul's argument is from creation itself, the the order of creation in Genesis 2. Man was created out of dust and and God breathed life into the dust and uh, that is how Adam was created. And he was given authority over the whole earth. He was to exercise dominion, to to name the animals and so forth. But God saw that it wasn't good for man to be alone. That was the first thing he said in this world is not good. And so he built Adam a helper out of his rib. He took out of Adam uh, and built Eve to be a helper and a partner in his work. And, and you might remember that when Adam first saw Eve, what did he do? He burst out in a song of, of praise, in, in, a, in a poem of love. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Um, by relating to one another rightly, these two were made in a complementary way to fulfill God's um, command to them to, to fill the earth and to subdue it. Paul therefore sees the issue of head coverings as one culturally embedded symbol of that right relationship between a man and a woman. By wearing a head covering, a woman was honoring her husband and symbolically submitting to his authority in that culture. Now that, that would have been how outsiders to the church would have seen the women wearing a head covering, and perhaps even how angels would have seen it as they joined together in worship with the church from the the heavenly realm. They would see the wearing of of the head covering as a joyful acceptance of the God-given gender roles and of uh, the woman accepting her place in creation as a helpmeet. And by not wearing a head covering, she would be dishonoring her husband and symbolically rejecting her God-given creation role. And whatever her motives might have been for doing that, the reality was that that behavior would bring disgrace and discord. The church should be a place where people relate to each other rightly. In a world full of confusion about gender, in a, a world full of confusion about how men and women should relate to each other, Christians are called to be a model in the church, and we model the goodness of God's design when we joyfully embrace our distinctive gender roles in ways that the the wider culture can understand. So lastly, let's think about how this might apply today, because it it is a cultural issue, it's a theological issue, but I I think it's even a contemporary issue. I already said that head coverings do not carry that same cultural connotation in our society as they did in Corinth. In, in fact, I don't think there is any one article of clothing or symbol that we can wear that would convey all the same meanings in our current day. You know, we could say that women shouldn't wear overtly sexual clothing to church and That might send the the wrong signals about what Christians believe and how we behave. And that would be true, but it doesn't really get at what Paul is getting at here because it wouldn't have that cultural honor or dishonor element of head coverings. And it wouldn't really reflect anything about complementary gender roles either. And so that semi-applies, but not really. Or we could say that married women, they, they shouldn't remove a wedding ring in church services. They should uh, keep their wedding rings on. And it would be dishonoring to their husbands to, to remove those. Uh, and it would maybe send the wrong signal to outsiders as well. And that gets at something of the symbol of authority and the, the relationship between genders. But it doesn't quite get it because both men and women wear wedding rings. And so it's a reciprocal thing rather than uh, one gender Um, showing its place, and another gender showing its place. I've been racking my brain, really, um, over the last several days, trying to think what is a good application for this? And I just can't come up with a a specific example for us today, Uh, an exact parallel for us today. And so instead of a particular practice, maybe it's better to just think of the the principles that Paul is teaching us here. First, men and women in the church should honor one another in ways that the wider culture will understand. Men and women should honor one another in ways that the wider culture can understand. So that rules out all sorts of misogynistic joking or lewd comments. It rules out drawing attention to ourselves rather than pointing each other to Christ. It, it rules out um, being dismissive or being patronizing in our attitudes towards one another. It means that marriage should be upheld and that men and women should both be treated with equal dignity and worth in every way. Because that's the reality of what we believe. And there will be culturally appropriate ways uh, that that can be shown in every culture. Secondly, men should be encouraged to lovingly exercise headship in their families and in the church. If God has created men to exercise a, a loving leadership, then the church should be a place where they are encouraged and enabled to do that. Just as Christ is the head of the church and He leads by selfless, sacrificial service, Christian men are called to lead their families and to take a lead in the church, not by being domineering, that would be the opposite of how Christ leads, but by exercising selfless, sacrificial service to those they have authority over. That's how a Christian man leads in his home and in the church. Thirdly, women should be encouraged to embrace male headship in their families and in the church. Just as a a Christian man doesn't lead by domineering, but leads by selfless sacrificial service, so a Christian woman should not reject or usurp headship, but submits to God's good design by enabling and encouraging the men in her life to take the lead. In the family, in the church, she wants to see them lead well. This will obviously sometimes be difficult. I mean, men are sometimes so inept, so sinful. I know that applies to me, and I know it applies uh, to many of us watching. And yet, if it is God's creation design for us that men should take a, a leading role, in their families and in the church, then it will be for our flourishing for that to happen. And so, uh, godly women will seek to honor that and and to help that to take place. Well, those are three principles uh, of application, Uh, but let's celebrate how God has made us. And let's not back down in the face uh, of a culture that doesn't understand that, but let's live it out and show how very good it is when God's people uh, relate to each other as they were created to relate and honor one another in the way that Christ calls us to. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You uh, for Your Word. We thank You that uh, there is wonderful truth there for us and it will help us to lead flourishing lives if we will only hear it and put it into action. Please would you take uh, what is useful in what I've said this morning, and apply it to the hearts of those listening. And might our church be a place where men and women relate rightly, where marriages are upheld, where families flourish, and where the church is built up. By your grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.